this afternoon, this evening. Uh, our text is going to be found uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Uh, those lyrics will be uh, up on the screens and they should be uh, with you there as well uh, at home. Hear the word of the Lord. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, if you're imagining one thing that can unite two very different people together as friends, who would have ever thought it would have been the word fat? Now, I'm not talking about uh, F-A-T, fat. I'm talking about P-H-A-T, fat. Uh, the, the phrase fat, whose etymology traces back to 90s hip-hop and R&B culture, which describes something attractive or something uh, beautiful, like, hey, man, that's a fat shirt you have on. I don't know why that word was used, but it just was. But this was the word that united Spencer Slayin and Rosalind Gutman together. Now, Spencer was a 22-year-old hip-hop artist from Brooklyn, New York, and Rosalind was an 81-year-old retiree living in Palm Beach, Florida. And one day, Spencer was uh, playing Words with Friends on his phone, and Words with Friends is just an online or digital version of Scrabble, and he's being challenged, and his competitor is Rosalind, and the first word that she plays is fat. That's hilarious. Uh, Spencer knew that he was playing this older lady, and he says, well, I'm going to play. Well, over the course of a year, they play about 300 games of Words with Friends with each other. And on Words with Friends, you can text back and forth, and they develop this friendship and uh, his friends knew about it, and they thought it was uh, the coolest story that they had ever seen. But isn't it a testimony? Isn't it compelling? Isn't it wonderful that two people from two very different backgrounds can bond over a common interest? Well, that's precisely what the Apostle Peter is encouraging the church to do in our text this morning. Now, the question for us is, how then do we exist as a united church? How do we exist as a united church? We have, even in this room, people from all walks of life. We have different opinions on probably a lot of things, but 
how can we be united amongst all of this diversity? We'll answer that question in two ways. First, we need to check our hearts. And two, we need to check our fellowship. So let's see how Peter encourages us to check our hearts in our first section in verses one through three. It's in this section where Peter starts off with the word so. And what Peter is doing is he's linking all the information from the previous sections of the letter, primarily the work of Jesus. Jesus's life, death, and resurrections for sinners. He's taking that beautiful good news and he's saying, so because of the work of Jesus, let's apply this to your lives. This is why he starts off with so. And then he moves into the phrase, put away, put away. Now, in English, that word sounds very um, tidy. It sounds very clean, something very delicate. Uh, but uh, it's not that. It kind of sounds like, have y'all seen the show on Netflix, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, that lady who takes disorganized things and cleans it and puts it away? It makes me wanna clean up my office so bad. And she does it so nicely. That's not what this put away means. This is not folding something beautifully and put it away. What Peter is talking about here in the Greek is an immediate ripping away of soiled or dirty clothes. Imagine having on uh, your date night shirt and something spills on it and you just immediately need to get that shirt off. I need to change, my go-to shirt is messed up. That's similar to what Peter is talking about here. So removing, immediate removal of soiled linens. Now he's using this phrase, coming off the heels of the gospel to tell us to do that type of immediate action to five words. And you'll see those in verse one. He talks about five words. He calls, he, he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now of all the words that Peter could have used here, he chose these five, ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit, these five words were chosen by Peter because these are unity killers. These five words form uh, kind of like a dream team, but like a, not a dream, but a nightmare. These five words form a nightmare team similarly to uh, the Monstars from Space Jam. If y'all have seen Space Jam, there's the Monstars and they play against Michael Jordan. These five phrases are the starting lineup of a nightmare team that absolutely war against church unity, that absolutely war against church unity. Now, Peter, if you remember, he's writing this letter to Christians who are uh, marginalized. The world that they're living in doesn't like them, doesn't like that they're there. And because he knows this, he's very much concerned for their unity amongst themselves. And he tells them to check their heart regularly by noticing uh, these five sins. And when these five sins start to creep up, when these five sins start to show themselves, Peter's saying that you need to take immediate action. You need to rip these sins away from you. You need to put them away. But why do we need such drastic action with these five words? These five words are important and necessary for believers to put away because when you indulge in these sins, 
It's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. These five sins, when you drink them, your ultimate desire is to see uh, other people hurt, to harm other people. And these sins begin in your heart and they work themselves out in deceiving and hurting other people. And ultimately, unity cannot exist where these sins are present. So Peter is saying, he's saying, look at yourself. He's challenging the church to look at themselves in the mirror of God's word and to feel uncomfortable with that. It's right for us to look at God's word and say, yes, that describes God's church. It's often been said that the church is kind of like a bunch of porcupines in a snowstorm. Have y'all heard that phrase before? So imagine a bunch of porcupines in a snowstorm. All the porcupines need to be around each other to stay warm. But what happens when porcupines get threatened? They start stinging other people. They throw their, I don't know, quills, is that what it's called? And start harming other people. That's what life is like inside of the church. Peter knows that we need, to, we need each other, but then once you start to mix in diversity, that's when things can get really painful. You see, the church is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum for saints. And when we understand this real unity, amongst a lot of diversity, can begin to grow. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle with these sins. And I'm saying we, me, I struggle with these sins. We all do. We lie. We're hypocrites. We say one thing and do another. We do things begrudgingly because we don't wanna be embarrassed. A lot of people say the church is full of hypocrites, and I'm like, you don't even know the half of it. We are rotten, and God knows how much more rotten than we could ever know about ourselves. We deceive. We tell half-truths to get our way. We slander and tear down under other people under the umbrella of venting. That's what we do. God knows this about us. He knows this more than we even realize it about ourselves. And he's put all of us Jesus-loving porcupines into this room together and calls us to pursue unity around Jesus. Well, how in the world do we do this? How in the world do we do this? If you're like me, you're thinking, God, can you give me, through Peter, uh, uh, some check boxes that I can go through to make sure I'm not existing like these deceitful and hypocritical Christians? What's, tell me what I need to do to make this go away. Peter knows that question's coming, and he answers in verses two and three. Look with me there. He says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then he adds this qualifier, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter tells us the trick to killing our sins doesn't come from within ourselves because we are the problem. If we are the problem, we can't simultaneously be the solution. So Peter tells us something from outside of us has to come in us, nourish us, change us, mature us, and grow us. And he tells us that it's the spiritual milk. 
And he says that we're to crave it like newborn infants. What's the spiritual milk? The spiritual milk that he's referring to is the word of God found in the Bible. If you remember Jesus's words in Matthew 4, he's actually quoting an Old Testament book called Deuteronomy. He says this, says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Moses is quoting the Old Testament, and then we see Moses saying this in Deuteronomy 32. He's given a long speech, and he says, the word of God is your very life. Throughout the Bible, we see uh, God's word being, ref- being referred to as being living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. God's word pierces to the core of who we are. And God's word goes forward and it accomplishes what it pleases and it doesn't return void. So because of this, because of our sin, because we're people who struggle uh, with this kind of nightmare dream team, Uh, in our own hearts, we need to regularly be drinking the spiritual milk of God's word because it reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of who we are in the great lengths that God went to to save us through Jesus. And he tells us we should crave this word like newborns crave milk. Now, let me tell you, If there was a newborn baby in here that was hungry, there is nothing in the world that any of us could do to make that baby stop crying unless feed it. Now, uh, they talk about the five S's, a swaddle, sing, shake gently to make newborns stop. Let me tell you, if a baby's hungry, it will not stop. It will shriek and scream until it's fed. You don't know hangry unless you've seen a newborn baby hungry right? That's how uh, Peter is encouraging us to be with God's word. We are to crave God's word. We are to long for it. We should want God's word to uh, nourish us. And then he takes it a step further. Think about newborn babies. Do they eat three square meals a day and call it a night? No. They eat every few hours, nonstop. They eat, wake, sleep, eat, wake, sleep. And this is the cycle that Peter is encouraging Christians to have with God's word as it nourishes us. It helps us to fight off this disease and infection called sin. So how do we fight back against this nightmare team? We cling to God's word day in and day out. We consume God's word. We long for God's word again and again. Now what's interesting is that after he says this, he qualifies this, and he has everyone have the ultimate check to their hearts. He says, this is how we fight, but first you need to check and see if you've actually tasted and seen and experienced that the Lord is good. And that question's for all of us. Have you drank from the well of God's mercy and grace? Have you drank from that well that's drawn from the veins of Jesus himself that says, I know you better than you know yourself and I love you anyway to die for you and I forgive you and you're mine. 
and no one will snatch you out of my hand. Have you tasted that gracious and beautiful fountain? If you haven't, let me encourage you to do that even now. There's no magic formula for that. It's just crying out for help. If you have any questions about what that looks like, please email me if you're watching at home, uh, mmorrison at christchurcheast.org. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I beg you to come talk to me after the service. So we ask the question, how do we live as a united church? First, we check our hearts, and then secondly, we check our fellowship. And Peter moves into this in our next section in verses four through eight. He moves from individual introspection to how we view uh, the good news of Jesus around other people, how we view people in light of the gospel. So in verse three, Peter's assuming that Christians have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He's assuming that Christians are being nourished by God's word And what happens when you start to focus on God's word and the gospel, it has a remarkable way to take our eyes off of ourselves and it helps us to look up and to see other people and to see their needs and to see people around us. And it helps us to ask questions like, how can I be a blessing to other people? And what Peter is doing in this text is he's drawing out that there's two spiritual building projects taking place. One house is man-centered. One house is man-centered. The other house is Christ-centered. And verse six says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. He is the stone that keeps everything level and squared and plumb. Now, the man-centered house, on one hand, sees Jesus as scrap parts. Those building materials with Jesus on them, I don't want those materials. Any building material that claims the name of Jesus or Christian or church, I don't want anything to do with it. That's scrap. I will not build my house with that. The house of man then is one whose foundation is built on there being no God. Or if there is a God, you can't really know him. And this house is being constructed with stones of consumption and ease and personal vanity and man-centered glory. And the man-centered house is built on the premise that man is the supreme being of all things. And mankind should live for itself, for their own personal happiness. Because you only live once, so why be anything but happy? Now, this house stands in uh, stark contrast. It's the actual antithesis of the house, the spiritual house, that God is building with Christ as the foundation. Notice in verse five, this house founded on Jesus, he's linking it to uh, the imagery of the Old Testament, to where there was the temple and the priests would come to the temple and the primary job of the priest was to offer sacrifices, So Peter's trying to help us to see that the spiritual house that God's building on Christ as the foundation is one that's characterized by living stones that understand sacrifice. What are these spiritual sacrifices? What are these spiritual sacrifices? 
Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 says this. It says, through him, referring to Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Romans 12, one, uh, the apostle uh, Paul is writing this. He said, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when you take all this together, what does that look like for us realistically in 2020? What does this spiritual house look like today? Well, we've said that this house is characterized by sacrifices, but these are spiritual sacrifices, not blood sacrifices, because this might sound weird, but if Jesus was like, just do a blood sacrifice, just cut your hand or wrist and then give that up and then it'll, blood will clot, you'll heal, go on. That would actually be easier than what, Jesus, what we're uh, being called to do here by Peter. That would be far preferable, preferable to what Peter is calling us to do. What Peter is calling us to do is much more challenging because it's lifelong, it's never ending, it's moment by moment, it's a lifelong dying to self. It is a constant, never-ending living for the good of other people. Y'all, that's hard. It's hard to live like that. Peter is calling us to die to our own wants and needs and living sacrificially for the good of other people, seeking to outdo one another and showing other people honor. That type of living is hard. It will not come in and of ourselves. We need God's word. We need that spiritual milk to sustain us because we will be depleted very quickly living like that by our own efforts with people who are very different from us. You see, it's in the spiritual house where Jesus is the foundation that each person recognizes that we are unique that we are beautiful based on the differences that God created us to have. And not only are we unique, but we're necessary, living, building materials, being used by God to build his kingdom. And it's this Jesus-centered blueprint where he has a place for everyone, and everyone is invaluable. This reminds me of the story, it's, uh, it's a book actually, a true story called Boys in the Boat. Uh, this story is about uh, a crew team from the University of Washington, so crew is where people sit in those long skinny boats and they row for a long time. Uh, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, they don't have rowing teams where I'm from. All right, so uh, this team, uh, this crew team from the University of Washington on the west coast, uh, they were made up of a bunch of farmhands. They were competing against Ivy School elite programs with pedigrees of year after year after year of championship road teams, but there was something special about this kind of misfit team from the Northwest. They had a desire to be united around winning more than their personal preferences. 
Now, the book goes on to tell about how it's necessary to, in this boat, have people made up of various physical attributes and personality traits. It's necessary. And some of the worst teams are actually made up of people who are all built the same way. Listen to this quote. He says, good crews are good blends of personalities. Some lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all of this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept others how they are. This is exactly what Peter is encouraging in this text. God is building a church that the gates of hell itself cannot prevail against. And not only that, we learn in the text that we will never be put to shame if we build our lives on Christ. The world will never be able to do that. So if, if hell cannot prevail against Jesus' church, if the world cannot prevail against the church, the church, far be it then from any one of us to look down upon or bring shame amongst any other people amongst God's house because they may be different. And church, this encouragement is just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. We are a church whose requirement for membership is that you have a valid profession of faith in Jesus, and that's it. That means that what you're bringing with you, all of your views, the way you think, read, act, write, sing, all of your personal preferences are going to be unique and different. And we're going to worship side by side with people every week. And God's designed it to be that way. It's beautiful because God has designed it to be that way. And guess what? There's gonna be challenges. There's going to be challenges. But when those challenges arrive, we must remember our first foot forward is unity. It's to stand on that cornerstone of Jesus and to fight for that unity around him. We fight for unity, remembering that the house of God is one in which we exist for the good of other people, for Jesus's fame and glory. We die to our self-interest and we drink the milk of God's word that reminds us if Jesus can sacrifice his perfect life to bring us into fellowship, then in him, by his spirit that lives in us by faith alone, we have the tools to lay aside our personal preferences for the sake of others in God's house and for Jesus' fame and glory. Think about it. What message are we sending to the world if the church, Christians, are at war with each other over social media? What message does it send to the world if we exist in little silos and cliques inside of the church 
And you have to look, think, dress, read, do everything just like the clique to be a part of the family. What message does it send to those outside of the church? What message does it send if we cannot love other people who claim the name of Jesus Christ even if they're very different from us. I'm not talking about loving someone like they're a weird cousin that we see at the family reunion once every few years. I'm talking about a loving family member the way Jesus sees all of us. You see, if Jesus can leave perfect, perfect unity from eternity past with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this beautiful union, if he can leave that and come to a battlefield called earth full of landmines to turn us in from enemy combatants into loving family members, how much more so should we be compelled to follow his path? The million dollar question is, what's stopping us? What's stopping us from befriending and loving Christians who are so polar opposite from us? We're in a political season. I have to say this. Is it a political view? I have a political opinion, but I have to check my fellowship if that impedes me from loving someone else even if they, I might disagree completely with them? Is it a theological position? Does it have something to do because of the way that person dresses or smells or the way they do things? Is it, is it something else besides their love of Christ that keeps us from loving other people? Because if it is, we need to repent. We need, to, we need to tear that away from us. And the good news about Jesus is that he just didn't die to take away our sins for one time only, but for the rest of our lives. So every time we see this nightmare team bubble up in our own hearts, when we see that we're not loving other people the way God has called us to, when we recognize that, we could come to Jesus in repentance. We could turn from that sin and cling to him and find forgiveness mercy and grace over and over and over again. So after 300 games of words with friends, Spencer's friends are just loving this story. They're loving how much they're growing to know each other. This beautiful friendship that's blossoming. So his friends are so excited, they gathered their money together and buy Spencer a plane ticket and flew him all the way down to Palm Beach to meet Rosalind. Spencer and Rosalind met at a hotel not far from the airport and they sat and they had lunch and they talked for an entire afternoon. Uh, the story was all over headlines. Uh, I encourage you to look up their story. It's beautiful. The pictures alone uh, brought tears to my eyes. But what this amazing story of friendship highlights for us is how people from different ages, backgrounds, cultural preferences, uh, desires for economy, whatever you wanna say, two very different people separated by thousands of miles can find unity, friendship, and love. 
You see, Spencer and Rosalind, they bonded over words with friends. And like them, the church is full of people from all different backgrounds, cultures, desires, personal preferences, and opinions. And the one unifying factor of all those things is the word that proclaims to us the goodness of Jesus for us. It proclaims to us that sinners are welcome and at home with him and that we are a group of people who know what Jesus did to save us and we can't wait to share that with other people and we welcome and we love people as they are as well. So how do we exist as a united church? We check our hearts and we check our fellowship by coming again and again and again to God's word because it's here where we're going to find the nourishment for our hearts, for our own personal growth, and our ability to grow as a church in love and unity. And guess what? The world will notice when we love each other well. And we'll look at that next week. Join me in prayer. Jesus, it is a high privilege to be as sinful as I am and to be able to find love and mercy and grace with you. It's a privilege to know that you saved me from my sin and when I return to it by faith and by confession and repentance, you restore me again and again and again. Father, I pray that we would have that type of mercy and forgiveness and grace, not only with ourselves, with you, but with other people in the church. Lord, as you grow your church, diversity will happen. Help us to invite diversity. Help us to love diversity. Help us to embrace our differences and the challenges that come with us and see that you are doing a work in us and through us that we would never be able to recognize or do by ourselves. Lord, you're doing something today in which people are gonna look and say, that's only something God can do. And I pray that you would use us boldly, Jesus, for your glory. Help us to love others. Help us to die to ourselves and live for your glory and your fame with the good of other people in mind. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.